0: all here. Today we are in the third or fourth week of Better Together, a series where we're just talking about What does it mean to be the local church at at Minooka Bible Church? Why is it that we do, as Pastor Brent said, why is it that we do what we do? And we're taking this series to kind of go through the biblical backdrop to each aspect of our mission statement, the real with God, real with each other, and real in the world. We we asked the first week um, that we got into this series, why do we go to church anyway? Like, why do we go to a place where we're gathering with God's people? And we talked about how the first community step of our discipleship plan as a church, I mean, we can, there's a lot of things we make decisions about individually, but the first community step that we make is to gather with the body of, the body of Christ, the, the, the bride of Christ on a weekend gathering. Um, we, we talked about the fact, though, that, I mean, seriously, you could get better preaching online, listen to music that you've selected, and hang out with people that you enjoy more than the people in your row outside of this gathering. So why do we gather? It comes down to the greatness of God and the fact that God has called us into community with one another, and there's something that happens. We talked about that the second week, that um, what, what happens each week that in our lives as believers. That the fact of the matter is, is that when you are saved, when God has redeemed you, you, something happens inside of you on an individual basis through the Holy Spirit that nobody can take away. And regardless of whether you're at a Manuka Bible Church or Grace or the Village or you live in another country, or you're behind prison walls, is true of you. And nobody can take that away. But that which God does individually in our lives is maximized as we gather. And so every, every week for 65 minutes, we get a chance to taste that and, and flesh that out. We get a chance to be a people that is this nation where Jesus is our king. We get to actually be the type of people that is, a, that is the, the family of God where we express forgiveness and love, we go through life with one another. We get a chance to not go to the temple, but be the collective temple of the Holy Spirit. Individually, these things are all true, but collectively, we get a chance to experience them. We wanted, um, as we were talking through, you know, the idea of gathering together as, as God's people, as a step of community, in our mission statement, we wanted to answer questions about why we do things in these services. And so this week we're talking about some of the things that we haven't gotten to already, which is, you know, why do we take communion, why do we give money, and why do we sing even when some of us can't sing? And some of us can't sing. You had the first song, you already know that, right? And so why do we do these things? If you grew up in a church setting where, um, where, <laughs> where a lot of these things are just givens, why do we do these things? I don't know, there's probably a Bible verse somewhere. I have no clue, though. I, we just, that's what church does. But if you're someone who's come from outside of church, in the fact that people have like this halftime in the service where they have snacks for adults, like small little bits of bread and a cup with juice, just a shot glass of juice. Why in the world do they do that? This makes no sense. This isn't, I'm way more hungry than this. Why do we do that? Why is it that they, I mean, they keep on saying that God has everything, he has and he needs nothing Why do they take a collection? Why is it that we sing when when honestly, I can find a better way to express myself to God than that? And the truth is that in these and more areas, when we gather as God's people, we get a chance to see what God's doing in us, that we are experiencing a social reversal of our model of giving and receiving. Every single one of us is conditioned with a worldview and a perspective that sometimes is congruent. With, with Scripture, and a lot of times, it's just opposite. And one of the things that's a very huge normative reality for us as, as Americans is the consumer model of, of everything. And The consumer model basically goes this way. I give something so that I can receive something else. I want something, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give X amount so I can get that that which I want. If you go to the movie theater, you're gonna put down ten bucks or so so that you can receive a movie. And if something goes wrong in your film, if the sound goes out or the something's wrong with the image, you're gonna get refunded your money because it's a consumer relationship. The only reason you're in relationship with that theater is to get what you want, and you know exactly what you've given which gives you the right to get it back. If you're someone who's sending a kid off to college, this should depress you. You're gonna give $19,548 per year so that they can receive one year of public college education. That should make all of us weep, weep, weep. But that is something we have an, an agreement, an expectation. Sadly, what we do is we bring that consumer model, which works fine when we're going to Walmart, but we, we impose it upon our, our relationships and we have the same thing in our relationships. I will give love and respect so that I can receive love and respect. If I'm not receiving love and respect, I will not give it. I'm not going to give you love. I'm not going to give you respect because I just, you're, not, you're not giving that back. I'm going to go and find a new person to invest in. And so this concept is something that we see all throughout our world. And if you wanted to summarize it in life, basically, I give so that I can receive, which again, makes sense in the marketplace, but it's poison. It's poison when we blanket that and impose it upon all of our other decisions. I believe that one of the things that God does through the local church is to remind us of the gospel, and where it takes this very normative reality that we've imposed on everything and flips it on its head. So that in the church, we come in with the reality, I have already received, therefore I give. I'm already a recipient, and therefore I give. Which, which leads into our first point. When it comes to our story and our services at Manuka Bible Church, we start with the understanding that it is God who generously gives First, it is not us, we're not coming in here as people that give to God or, you know, I'm just going to show God how awesome, you know, I'm a good person so I'm going to show up and give my presence at church and then God's going to bless me or I'm going to give money and God's going to bless me or I'm going to give whatever else. We come in here with the understanding that we're not the initiator in this relationship. That it is God who has woken up our dead hearts. It's God who has woken up our whole lives. And so everything that we think that we're doing, even if we think that we're taking an initial step, is a secondary step to what he's already accomplished in us, which is why we take the Lord's Supper, which is why we participate in that. Now, how many of you grew up in a church setting where you took uh, communion once a week or the Eucharist? Okay, that's a a once-a-week thing, hands down. How many of you grew up in a church setting where it was once a month? Okay, Uh, how many of you didn't grow up in church and you still think it's a little weird, this whole communion thing? Okay, okay, a couple of us, yeah. Uh, 8 a.m. service, it was so funny because 8 a.m., there was like a lot of people like, yeah, I didn't grow up in this, this is kind of new. All right, so here's the thing. The Lord's Supper is this amazing picture. It's a commemoration and proclamation of Jesus' death until he returns. And when we we take communion um, at our church, we do this once a month. Now, the Bible doesn't give a recipe for when it should be done, just what should happen when it does happen. But it is something that we get the picture that it should be done frequently. And so if you're in a church setting where it's done every, week, every single week, praise God. If you're, done, if you're in a church setting where it's done once a month, well, praise God. If NBC ever went every week, that, that, that would be fine because we have the freedom to do one or the other. But when we do it, what we, we make sure is that it's done with bread and with the cup. The bread and the cup are significant because the fact that Jesus, this is what Jesus did in the Passover meal. He broke the bread, and and then then they shared the cup. And these are both important pictures. The the bread is a picture. We we, we say that, that it's symbolic of God's body. Jesus said, this is my body, broken for you. And so whenever we take communion, we're coming back to the fact that it was not my body that bore the consequence of sin, it was Christ's. We're taking that as a remembrance and a proclamation of the fact that his death was for mine and it wasn't the end of the story. Whenever we take the cup, we're taking a cup that's, that's, that's rep, it's a picture of the fact that he poured out his blood. It wasn't my blood, it was his. Now, how many of you grew up in a church setting where you didn't have the knockoff cheapo grape juice, you actually had the real deal, wine? Okay, what does the Bible say? Wine. So why are we so unbiblical at Monoca Bible Church? How many of you would really like if we had real wine? <laughs> Thank you, Joel. Thank you, Joel. All right, here's the thing about it, why in the world do we do grape juice? That again is something where I, I believe scripture gives us permission to go either way and here's why. Uh, the, the church as a whole for almost 2,000 years used real wine. Up until like the 1800s, when um, honestly it wasn't even the Baptists who kind of got this going, it was the Methodists. Um, the Methodists had two major issues in the world in the 1800s. One of them was slavery, and the other was alcohol. And they saw both of them as, as poisons to society and from their vantage point. And so they were really strong advocates of the Underground Railroad, and they were really strong advocates to do away with alcohol totally. But they were stuck because Jesus called them to take part in this ceremony that we experienced in, in communion, and wine was used for that. As soon as you crush a grape, as soon as that, that, that grape is, is utilized uh, for juice, it starts to ferment. And so it wasn't a very easy process to do non-alcoholic communion until this guy named Tom uh, came up with this idea. See, Tom was, he was a Methodist. Um, He was also a strong advocate within the Underground Railroad. And Tom was was a trained minister, and he was also a dentist. I don't know how those two go together, but that was his deal. He was a minister and a dentist. And he came up in 1869 for a way to pasteurize grape juice so that it could stop the fermentation process. And you all know this guy, this Tom, because his last name is Welch. And Tom, Thomas Welch, came up with the idea for the Methodist church to have non-alcoholic wine so that they could participate in, in communion because they were seeing people that were coming into service slosh. They were, the alcohol was a big deal and they didn't want to see people adding to that additional shots during sermons and service times. And so he, he advocated for this idea of a non-alcoholic approach. But here's the reason why I think that we have permission to go either way. And this is why. Because both wine and grape juice have something in common. I am the consumer of this. I receive the cup. But in order for me to consume this, in order for me to receive this, the picture is the same, whether it's wine or grape juice. Something had to be crushed. Something had to die. The picture that we see in communion is the fact that Jesus is saying the person that had to be crushed and had to die was not you, it was me. And my blood is the new covenant. For you now, when we take this, this is um, something that we look at this as an open. At Manuka Bible Church, we have an open table, which means that if you came here from another church that and, you, and you're a follower of Jesus, um, if you came here from another state or another country, that in this room, as brothers and sisters in Christ, this table is open to you. That if this is open to any person who has received Christ's forgiveness through His blood on the cross. This table is open to you, but if you're not. This table is closed to you. This is, a, this is a table that's for followers of Jesus who are believers. But the beautiful thing is, is that whenever we see the opportunity to preach the gospel, and that's what communion is, it's preaching the gospel again to ourselves, we see the chance for someone to recognize their sin and their Savior and surrender their life to him. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus in this moment, this is not a sacrament that can save you just by doing this act. Ephesians 2 lets us know we can't do anything to earn our salvation. But in your heart, you can surrender your life to Jesus. And based on his work for you, you as you're taking your first communion can actually be taking the first steps into acknowledging the gospel of what Jesus has accomplished for you and take your first steps out of here as a believer. Scripture says that we shouldn't do this in an unholy or in an inappropriate manner. It talks about how some people in the early church got sick or even died from taking communion because they did it in a cavalier way where they weren't contemplating the reality of what, what was actually happening, that this was a commemoration of what Jesus accomplished. Uh, people back then, were, were eating, it was a much bigger feast, and so they were using it just to feed their face or drink a lot. And, and that was something that was absolutely inappropriate. We also see that, that it's inappropriate um, to go across with communion as something um, that you're not entering into that, that we need to be entering into with, an unrepent, with a repentant heart. Every single one of us in this room, we walk in here with things on us. We remember the fact that we have walked in sin, and sometimes you may be walking in unrepentant sin. I mean, that might have been something this past week or this past month, or I don't know, in the, in the parking lot. You're coming in here, we have stuff. When we take communion, it's almost like a checkpoint where we get a chance to check ourselves and ask ourselves, God, am I walking in any unrepentant sin, either mentally or physically? Am I doing something that is apart from you, that's not congruent with the sacrifice you gave for me? And in communion, we we give time for people just to spend some time thinking and reflecting and repenting. That's a special, sacred time. That even though this is symbol, that this is not Jesus' actual body or actual, actual blood, We believe that even though it's simple, it's a signpost pointing to the gospel, what Jesus accomplished, and that he is here with us. We are taking communion, not in isolation, off on some retreat by ourselves, but in a community of family, the family of God, and Jesus is here with us. If you have small kids, this is an opportunity for you to do something very, very important, if your child is not a Christian yet, they just, they've never come to a point of surrendering their life to Jesus, of receiving his salvation, this is a chance for you to actually teach them. They're not taking communion because they're not a Christian yet, but, but you can actually take them, communicate with them. This, this bread, what does this represent? That's right, it represents Jesus' body. This cup, what does it represent? That's right, it represents Jesus' blood. Why does that give us hope? If your small child is a Christian, you get a chance to still teach them and say, okay, and you can do this right as I'm talking. Um, when, when I'm up here up front, when, we're, when we've distributed the elements, you can actually communicate with them. I want to remind you, what does the bread represent? What does the cup represent? Why does that give us hope? And that you get a chance to experience and express so, so we'll never forget the great gift of salvation and the great giver, Christ Jesus our Lord. So right now, what we're going to do is what we do when we take communion. We're going to give you a chance to exit your rows on the left-hand side, to go to the tables that are either in the back or the front. When you bring them back to your chairs, spend some moments in reflection. Think back to between now and the last time you took communion. Where where are you at? Where's life at between you and the Lord? And if if there's need for repentance, and I'm going to be honest, all of us need that, what can we do to surrender, surrender that over to Jesus' care so we're not walking with that anymore? He's taking care of it. We know that. Take that opportunity right now. We receive the Lord's Supper, we are in fact receiving something significant from God. We are in this act receiving, as well as we're participating. We're receiving that confidence and that reality built and based on what he did. The bread, again, is a picture of his body. It helps us remember that it was his sacrifice, not ours, that accomplished our salvation. When Jesus gathered with the disciples, it says this, and he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body given to you, do this in remembrance of me. The cup is significant. Because all throughout the Old Testament, you see the need for a sacrifice. You see the need for for something to bear the weight of wrong and that it was blood. That was the Old Covenant, but Jesus steps in and says, this is the sign and the seal of the New Covenant. The New Covenant is my promise to you that I have done everything necessary. I have done everything necessary to accomplish your security between you and God, that that thing that walks with you and haunts you, that you constantly use as a disqualifier, that my payment is even greater than that. That we can walk in confidence and joy because of the fact that he gave his blood. The next verse in Luke 22 says, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup, is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Take this in remembrance of him. Lord Jesus, we thank you. As we participate with this, we remember that it was your sacrifice, not ours. Your payment, not ours, that accomplished what we could never hope to retrieve or rebuild on our own. Thank you for allowing us to be the recipients of your grace and your power and your ongoing presence. That even now, God, we can realize and recognize that you have not left us, that you are with us to the end. In Jesus' name, amen. And so, the thing that's phenomenal about when we receive, when we come in here as people who are receiving, and when we receive the Lord's Supper, is that we start with this reality that, that. When someone does something for somebody else, it has an impact. Um, If somebody gives you something, and humanly speaking, this is hard to overcome. If someone gives you a gift, it's very, very difficult not to Contemplate or, or quantify what did that cost this person? Like, how much of a big deal was that? Um, if someone gives you something that they, they spent a long time making, you, you, you quantify that. that. That person just gave a huge investment of time to me. Or if they help you move, or if they help you out financially, or something, you always are thinking about how big of a sacrifice this is, and that dictates how amazingly overflowing with gratitude you are. Like, if somebody did something for you and it wasn't a big deal, like you knew that they didn't even think about it, Um, you're kind of like, well, thanks. I appreciate that. But if someone did something significantly massive in sacrifice, it it changes you. And that's what we see um, in in being recipients of Jesus, of his sacrifice and his grace. It does something inside of us where when he is the first giver to us, it transforms us as his image bearers into being a reflection of that. We, we see this generosity and this grace given to us, and it starts to motivate our hearts to be less self-absorbed and more other-centric and actually more, more godly-minded when it comes to the way we look at others. And that, that's part of the reason why, when we gather here on a weekly basis, that we step into that as the gospel giver. We've already been the, the gospel receiver, but gospel giving is we respond to our generous God by joy-filled giving. And, and we do that in our weekly uh, giving, just even in financially, uh, we, we see that happening. And we see that happening throughout scripture. Um, We see it in the Old Testament in in Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy uh, talks about this. It says, every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing, the Lord your God has given you. Once again, every, every man shall give, not, not the same as the person next to him, not as much maybe in uh, the same percentage as the person, uh, someone else in the room, but the fact that every person should reflect on what we've been given by God, that God has given us everything, and then that we can actually step in. Well, there, well, there we go again. Woo! All right. So every man should do that. Now, that, that's an interesting thing as we see in, in the Bible. We, we, when we see this concept of giving, in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, there's this command called the tithe. And what, 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 what does tithe mean? Ten percent, Yeah. And so it's this, this, this percentage. But it's in Leviticus, in the Mosaic law, in the family of things that Jesus already, Jesus paid for. So all these things that God's people were commanded to do, and that, that 10% was to go to the tabernacle and to the temple ultimately for God's work there. And then on top of that, they gave offerings. And so they took a tenth of everything they had and they gave it to God. And it was a way that God used to, to, to center their life around him and, and have his work as, as key in their heart. It was phenomenal what it did, but it was, it was a command. It's in the family of other things that were commanded that Jesus accomplished on the cross. So no longer do you see people legally bound to that, but we still see the concept of, of giving as key. In fact, in 21st century, it gets a little bit more complicated because we get a paycheck. And every, every month that, or every uh, two weeks or every week, depending on when you, you get paid, you've got a set of earnings and the, and the set of earnings that you have, you actually have the opportunity every single month to make a decision of what percentage you're going to put into each one of these buckets. One is spending. So like you know the things, you know the bills, uh, the cell phone bills, the car bill, the whatever, school bills, um, food, um, McDonald's, going to that movie for 10 bucks, whatever. Sp- family vacations, we got that right here. So we make a decision of how much we're gonna spend there. And then we just make a decision on how much we're gonna save or invest. And then we make a decision on how much we're going to give. And so when we see in Scripture this concept of giving being connected to this, like, 10% number, I honestly think that that number is a little arbitrary because of the fact that, again, Jesus accomplished it. But the interesting thing is that the New Testament Christians, after actually the post-New Testament Christians in the early church started saying, you know what, even though Jesus has accomplished everything for us in the Mosaic Law, so we're not legally obligated, there was something about that that was that was a healing gift from God to give that much to him. Every time we had an opportunity to give, that when we were giving 10% in the 100s and 200s and 300s on, we see the early church dedicating that amount. And and the interesting thing is that when we look at that, um, we see that, wow, so they were making the decision not to be legally bound or guilt-driven to do it, but instead saying, I want a percentage like that was given in the Old Testament to refine God's people's hearts to be reflected in my own finances. And so, I, I'm not a financially smart person, okay? If you want to look for a financially smart person, talk to Julie. Um, I, if, you get, if you trusted me, you know, to do your taxes and stuff, you'd be bankrupt. But smarter people than me have actually, who are really godly people, um, who've walked through, in 21st century, what do we do with the rest of this? The wisdom that they've given is pretty phenomenal. And one way of looking at it is that if we do 10% of, our, of whenever we get our earnings, then we should also be saving either 10 to 15%. And, and some people say 15% because we're living a little bit longer, we should be saving more for the future. Um, if you've got kids that are going off to college, sometimes uh, having 15% may be a little bit more uh, accurate, but, but that we're putting money away so that we're not always in a reactive mode. A lot of us in our, our finances, we feel like we're in a crater and we're, we're just reacting like you know, paycheck to paycheck. This is a little bit more of a rhythm to get us into a place where we're seeing our money being something that we are utilizing in worship and not reactive as much. So what does that leave us with? 10, 10, what do we got left? Okay, 80%. Okay. One person after Saturday service said, so basically when I I saw my uh, father-in-law do this with his kid, and he said this idea of, of giving God 10% seems like a lot until you, you think about it from a parent-parental standpoint. If I went up to Cohen and I said, hey, Cohen, um, I'm going to give you $10, but uh, I'm giving this to you, but I would like it if you'd give me a dollar back. Would, would you be okay with that? Um, more than likely, Cohen's going to say, yeah, let's pony up the nine bucks. Let's do this right now, Dad. Um, but the, the truth is, is that there's this amazing reaction as God's people to this now, even though the scriptures don't lay out the percentages, like especially in these departments, as far as uh, if we, with our earnings, how we manage our money, this is more of just like a, a wisdom thing, not not a biblical thing. Um, the scriptures do talk about the order. Oftentimes, our primary order is we start with the spending. Like, how much, how much do we have? You know, like, okay, we gotta pay the bills, which is responsible, it's responsible adults do that. Um, and then, you know, we're, let's go on a vacation. We, we really gotta go to Arby's because I'm thinking Arby's, and Arby's is what classy people eat. And um, so we do that over here, and, we're, and we're, so we're doing all that. And then we get to this point, where we're like, this sounds really good, give me a couple more years, and I'll have, like, I'll be in a good place where I can start saving for the future, but not right now. And, oh yeah, I forgot. Next week, next week I'm on this, okay? I, I don't carry a checkbook, so I, I, whenever they have the offering, I'm just like, whatever. And so, um, and so that ends up what ends up being the order of what all of us will default into just by gravity. But scripturally, we see more of an order like this. It actually is the exact opposite of what we seem to see as a default in, our, in the United States. Um, Paul talks about this when, when he was speaking specifically about a fund that was helping out um, some poor women uh, that, that were within the church that he wanted to help out. He says, now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. So again, you're not comparing yourself to the richest or the poorest person around you. You're just doing something that's you know, adequate to you. Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Paul's talking about this order being a recipe of a rhythm and a pattern in life where all of a sudden we have a different way of managing our money. Here's what happens. If I start over on this side and I actually am giving generously to God, do you think that I'm going to have at the end of the month the same amount to spend over here on the other stuff that I normally spend on? Maybe not. Probably not. In fact, there's going to be decisions that that myself as as an individual single or myself as a family will make that will be different over here if I actually started on that side over there. But that actually becomes something that starts to change us internally, and that's another gift from God. I wanted to show a video um, with uh, Karen. Uh, Karen Kay, the, the, just uh, she had an amazing. She shared some awesome stuff with my wife and I, and so we. I said, Karen, we got to videotape you. Get over to the church, and so we did. We we videoed for twenty minutes, and I was trying to whittle it down to three to five minutes, and couldn't do it. And so we're going to show her video when we get to talking about what happens in our our giving when we get to the real in the world stuff, because it's amazing to see what God does through the local church. But we're going to have to take that seven minutes and put it over there. But I want to just give you a little bit of a spoiler alert from the video. Um, The Kay family had just this amazing realization that we we needed to get our finances in in check. They went to Financial Peace University last year with the Spiveys, and they found throughout 2016 themselves getting out of debt. And then all of a sudden, just the management happening in such a way that they were blown away and liberated by a lot of the constraints that life sometimes has when we're just freaking out with our finances. And all of a sudden, the coolest thing happened. They find themselves living with less and actually being satisfied. And then December happened, and they had a house fire. And many of you knew that, and you prayed for them. Some of you helped them out. And Karen talks about how this is actually one of the things that God used so greatly to show them, his power and his sovereignty and, and, and his provision. They're, they're in a, a, a temporary home right now, and the, the floors are all hard, and they've got dogs, and so they're usually down on the ground with the dogs and stuff, and so like, well, we're going to be here for a couple months. We should, we should get some, some stuff for this place, and let's, let's, what if we got like this big old like rug like for the floor and so we can sit down on it, and it'll be nice and soft and everything, and they're like, oh, yeah, okay, well, how much is that going to be? And they're trying to contemplate and quantify how much this big rug going to be. And then Karen had this realization, and both her and Roland looked at each other like, wait, hold on a sec. We're only going to be in this place for two months or so while they're rebuilding the house. Why would we spend so much money on something so temporary? And then this eureka moment happened for them when they said, why have we always been doing that even before the fire, spending so much money on temporary things that break, that are junk? that expire, that go out of style. One of the things that we as a people of God get a chance to do is we experience this amazing reality of God doing this work in us where we get a chance to be the people who are responding to the great giver by by just jumping in on that with him. And what I have found, every single person I've talked to, when they're doing this, they get a chance to see that God not only does provide for them but they find that God blesses them in ways that they, could, they weren't experiencing otherwise. That he starts this rhythm in their life where he doesn't give us so we just continue to accumulate more and more and more. But instead, he gives us so that all of a sudden, we were able to spend that in ways that are honoring him. And then he gives us. And then we're able to channel that way that's honoring him. And this pattern continues throughout our life. Because God never wanted us to be this people that are just hoarding more and more stuff. He wanted us to be a channel of his goodness to others, and that is phenomenal. Now, if you try this out, and if you seriously step into this, and like in a month or two months, you come back to me and say, you're an idiot. That didn't work. Well, I'm not telling you a recipe to get more and more stuff. I'm talking to you about the recipe for following God's lead in such a way that you see yourself as a channel of his good work. Now, again, most of us here, I can't tell you, I I never have been a check Check, uh, book carrier. Um, some of you are still rocking the purses and you're like, oh, we got it right here. But most of us, we don't. Uh, most of our, our monetary interactions are with our phone um, when we're out or maybe with our wallet. Um, but I want to encourage you to, I'm going to challenge you to actually take a step into this. To actually make your giving something that is a worshipful act where you're saying, God, I'm trusting you. I'm going to do this right at the beginning when I get my paycheck so that I'm not tempted by how much I've spent over here, not to do anything significant. But I, I wanna actually challenge you to take a step and say, God, I wanna step into this. And, I, and the way that, that we do it is that we we're able to do, whether it's online on the website or on the church app to give online. Some people actually, when the offering bag is being passed, they take out the church app and they give right then and there. That's great, but whatever you do, I want it to be like, I want it to be worshipful. If you're not a believer, I do not want you to give because this is a worshipful act for us. If you are a believer, this is something that is for you. This is for you. If this isn't your home church, I don't want I don't want I want to encourage you not to give here, but I want you to give to your home church because that's where we see some great impact happening. But if this is your home church, this is where we get a chance to step in and watch as God does that. Some people do it where they set up just like a reoccurring thing. At the beginning of their month, that's automatically withdrawn. So they know every month I'm taking steps to just deal with the portion of the leftover that God has given me and watch and see what happens with that. And they've been blown away. And I wanna challenge you to step into that. That's why we take the offering. So when you see that pass, that's why we have that weekly giving. We also have, um, we respond to our generous God like joy-filled giving in our voices. Now, this is honestly something that I want to challenge the men specifically. Men, step it up. Too many of the kids in this church have grown up watching men like this when, when worship is being sung. They're just... Or, or you know, it's, it's a little bit more slick today. It's just like... We need to step it up. And here's why: our kids need to see men proclaim the truth of Christ. Now, women, I'm I'm not leaving you out. You guys got to step it up too. But you do great more more often than not. It's usually the guys are like, "Look, my dad didn't sing in church. I'm not going to sing in church. It's like a godly heritage I've received from him. I'm passing on to my children." (laughs) Boys don't sing, girls do that. I don't know something. But we need we need to be the people that are actually belting out truth because music is something where we have theology, the truth of God, mixed with heart, the feeling about God. And we see theology and emotion combined into song. This is why when we see in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, the, the fusion of two, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through the Psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. This is why in the Psalms it says, Come, let us sing for, sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. And so when we get to music points, and if you're like, I, yeah, I, just, I don't know the song. Or again, I feel like a hostage. Garcia has, again, chosen music I would not have chosen. Resonate with the words and with gratitude. Gratitude. Say, I'm, I've come in here as a recipient, a, receiving, a receiver of God's graciousness, of his generous provision. I'm going to bring to him. I'm going to respond generously with the gift of my voice, even though my voice is not a gift to anybody else. Okay? So when we sing, we lift it up. And when we do that, we're experiencing the expression back to our gracious God, our generous God. 20, when I was 23 years old and I was a new youth pastor here at this church, I, I, was a, I worked with 360 and I loved working with 360. And, I, and the thing that I, and this is actually back around Joel in your days, but like right, right after the, those times, I remember at the end of 360, um, just thinking about everything that just took place. And as people are leaving the room and all the students are finally gone, I've said goodbye to all the, the, the coaches, all the, the adult volunteers, they're, they're finally gone. And I'm kind of looking around, straightening up the room just a bit. And I was just overwhelmed with what God had done in that night. Even though it wasn't significant. There was only like a handful of kids. But it was like the fact that I got a chance to participate in that with these people. And this is back when, when I was leading worship for 360, which tells you how desperate the times were And I sat down and the room was all empty and I sat sat down just on the carpet and I took the guitar and I started to sing a song that I remembered from when I was in high school. A song that was called Good To Me and I would just, with no one else in the room, I would just sing this song. And I'm gonna sing it for you right now. So you're welcome. (laughs) And I apologize. The song goes, um, I cry out For your hand of mercy to heal me, I am weak, for I need your love to free me, O Lord, my rock, my strength in weakness, come rescue me. Oh Lord, And as I'm singing that, I'm, I'm, I'm empathizing with each one of those words because I'm 23 years old, and I'm, I'm massively insecure. I'm like, I'm, am I blowing it as a youth pastor? I don't know if I'm doing it. Am I blowing it as a husband? I don't know if I'm doing those, all these things right, but right now I know that he is my provision. He is the one who is my rescue. And then the song goes, You are my hope, and your promise never fails me. And my desire is to follow you forever. And then it gets to the best part. For you are good. For you are good. For you are good to me. For you are good. For you are good. For you are good to me. And I'm not a crier, but I'm 23 years old and the tears are coming down my face because those words are so true. For you are good. For you are good. For you are good to me. 17 years after that, last Saturday night, the room is emptying out. The pastors have already met pastors are now locking up the doors and they're leaving. They're turning out the lights. They leave the light on in here because I'm still getting dressed from after the baptisms. And I'm in this room alone with all these empty chairs. And I'm reflecting on the fact that I had the opportunity with the gathering of God's people to proclaim his truth and song, to get into the word, to give, that all those things we were able to do better together. And he continues to give and to give. We got to hear the baptism testimonies. We got to see those people who are proclaiming how God intersected their life. You were there, right? And I'm hearing all those things and all of a sudden, I'm just sitting here in this room, empty, putting on my boots, looking around at these empty chairs. For you are good. For you are good. For you are good to me. We his church have the opportunity to gather and proclaim a message together to respond to the great giver. Let us always be the people who are responding to his generosity with hearts full of joy. Amen? Amen. 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 We're going to end this service as, as people who are responding to his gift as givers. Let me pray for that right now. Lord Jesus, In our gifts and in our song, we are not paying you back in a way that we could possibly match your gift. We're not setting up some type of scheme where we're expecting uh, to get wealthier or healthier or anything else. We're simply responding as people who have been given so much to the great giver. Lord, I pray that our life is filled with the joy that comes from those who understand how much they've been given. And Lord, we know that even that is a too tall order for this life. That it is you who brings us the peace. And it's it's you that in a world that can sometimes be so chaotic, so disorganized and frantic, you are the peace in the midst of it all. We give to you our hearts and our joy and everything else we have. It's in your name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen.